at Athens, his spirit was provoked with him in him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of their Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God. And perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own prophets have said. Poets have said, sorry. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. An image formed by the art and imagination of man. The time of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus and the Arapachite and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Thank you, Mel. Oh, it's good to, uh, it's good to be here at City Light. I've been coming here on and off since uh, it began many, many years ago. How many years is it? Six years. You're making me feel old. I live all the way out now in the kingdom of Kellyville, so uh, I had to go through passport control just to make it here to Balmain today. But it's okay, I like to travel because Balmain, it brings the culture. Not like me living out there in the suburban wasteland with the Neanderthals and the liberal voters, no. Here you have proper restaurants, and lots of them. And there's nothing better, is there, to cause a conflict in a friendship group like mine, at the very least, than trying to decide on where you're going to eat in Darling Street. Because you'll have friends, and they'll sit there and go, we could go Turkish, we could go Thai, we could go Spanish could go Vietnamese, we could go modern Australian. And depending on the makeup of your friendship group, that decision is going to take so long that you might threaten murder by the end of it. Uh, it's so flippin' frustrating. I don't know what people want. I wish I could go me a Penang curry. Maybe I'll go and get some tempura. Or the panini is calling me. And just give me a minute, guys. I need to figure this out. 
I've unfriended people on the spot because of this decision because I just want to eat. I don't want to watch someone stand on Darling Street, play deal or no deal, you know, box 27 or box 21, you know, like, it's not my idea of a good time. And even once you've picked your restaurant, your problems are only just beginning because then there's the menu to navigate. And so you have these people at your, at your table and they'll say things like this, just give us a few more minutes, waiter. And you know for sure that you're not eating for a minimum of an hour because this person is not going to be able to decide. People just can't decide these days because there are so many options. It's called option paralysis. In the face of so many choices, you become like a deer in headlights and you just can't choose anything at all. I was in the States a couple of years ago, and there's a place in the States, particularly on the West Coast, called In-N-Out Burger. In-N-Out Burger is this iconic burger chain in, uh, based in California, and um, they basically sell three burgers on their menu. A hamburger, a cheeseburger, and a double cheeseburger. That's it. Now, truth be told, I've got friends who'd still have a midlife crisis trying to pick from one of those three, but In-N-Out seems to understand Limit the choices and everyone's happier because we feel overwhelmed by the options. We feel overwhelmed by the options. This is how I feel when I open up Netflix. It's that feeling you have when you just know it's not possible to be sure you're picking the best option. We can move on from Dawson's Creek. We'll go to the next slide. (laughs) But you know what it's like? Like, we actually have so much TV now, and we know we've got so much TV that every time you pick something, you feel overwhelmed. And this feeling of overwhelmingness, it actually really is a thing. Uh, There's a bunch of social psychologists who seriously argue that one of the reasons there is unhappiness within the Western world is because we have an overabundance of choice. So one of the guys that I particularly know in this field is a guy called Barry Schwartz, and he, if I understand him right, says that we now have so many choices that we're never really satisfied by any choice we ever make, because we're always wondering whether all the other options would have been better. So you know what it's like. You're in Gelato Messina, and there it is, and you're sitting there going, do I go apple pie? Do I go cookies and cream? Do I go chocolate? Do I go coconut and lychee? And you pick one, and then you're sitting there, and instead of enjoying your gelato, all you're thinking is, darn it, should have got panna cotta. (laughs) The night is ruined. The one time I was ever in Rome, I went into a gelato store that had, get this, 150 flavours of gelato. It had 13 different types of chocolate. I was so overwhelmed, I just went into a coma. I just couldn't cope. I, couldn't, I could not deal with the choice. That's why we're so unhappy. Nobody ever enjoys what they pick anymore because every choice leaves you wondering, maybe what they're having is better. Now, all jokes aside, is finding God something like that? Like in the past, the God question was substantially easier. Like, in the good old days, everybody was sort of a Christian. So that even if you're an atheist, the God you didn't believe in was the Christian God. But nowadays, we have this enormous spiritual menu available where everything seems optional. 
There's a spiritual menu and you can be forgiven for throwing up your hands and saying, God, if you're real, couldn't you make yourself a bit more obvious? And yet even in the light of all of those overwhelming feelings which I think are present within our culture and may be present within the room today, I'm going to be audacious and say that today I think God has made himself already clear. And the words of the passage that were read earlier said that God wants us to seek him and find him because I don't think God is actually trying to hide from us. I think God wants us to know him, but perhaps what we need to talk about is the kind of clarity you're looking for. Perhaps that's what we need to talk about today. What is the clarity that you're looking for? But before I go there, let me just admit where I'm not going to go today. In a world filled with lots and lots of religious options, there's a real temptation to kind of sit there and make two types of blanket statements. The first of those blanket statements is to just sit there and go, I just hate this religion thing, and so I'm just going to say all religions are wrong. Don't ever look for clarity in religion. That's a contradiction in terms. So that's your kind of Richard Dawkins solution. The God delusion Everybody is wrong. That's a worthwhile topic to engage. It's not a bad question, but we're not going to go and do that today. Some other time, maybe. Perhaps another more popular option is to say the exact opposite, which is to say something that they're all true in some sort of way. They're just different paths up the same spiritual mountain. They're just different camera angles on the same spiritual reality. And I want to understand, I want you to understand that I get that. I get why people say that, because discussing spiritual things can bring conflict, and conflict can draw apart a society and divide us, and so sometimes the best thing to do is that we just want to eliminate the possibility of argument. So it's kind of like coaching junior sport, and instead of creating an argument, you just say, you're all winners. Everyone gets a trophy. Nobody was better than anybody else. Because we're afraid of sowing division. And yet, even though I understand why people do do that, I want to suggest that that's actually not a wise strategy. For two reasons. First, in seeking to affirm all religious perspectives as true, you actually end up honouring none of them. And that's because what we tend to do when we do this kind of talking is we tend to force all religions to kind of edit out anything that's central and unique to their faith and just get them to focus on the side bits that are actually overlapping. And whilst we do overlap in all sorts of ways, I share lots in common with my Muslim friends and my Hindu friends, but to be told by someone, well, you've just got to do the God bit, Mark, but you can't really focus on Jesus. Or to say to my Muslim friend, you've you've got to do the God bit, but you can't really focus on Muhammad. That's not particularly helpful to anyone who's actually an adherent to that faith. It's kind of papering over the cracks. But the second reason that I don't think it's a good way to go is that I think it's poor that in our culture, friendship and civility has to be based on agreement with one another. The notion that I can only ever be friends with you if we agree about everything is actually one of the most toxic things in our culture. Because it means as soon as we have a disagreement, I'm not your friend anymore. And that's not how I want to practice life. 
And it's certainly not how I find that most of the people from other religions want to practice life towards me. But rather, we have the capacity to be able to journey together towards truth by not papering over the cracks, but sitting there and presenting our positions with respect and with kindness. So I'm not going to take the pathway that all religions are wrong, nor am I going to take the pathway that all the religions are true. Instead, I'm simply going to say that I think God has revealed himself clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I realize that that statement sounds naive. This is the modern world, Mark. You can't talk like that anymore. And what is lying behind that reaction is the assumption that it's only in modernity that we've developed this idea of a plurality of religions. So that in the past, what used to happen was you'd grow up in your own little native country and they'd have one religion and you'd never travel and you'd only ever go to your one temple and know your one God and nobody ever talked to one another and nobody ever crossed paths. And so therefore, you just kind of lived within your safe little monochromatic world of religion. And it's only in recent years with the advent of sea travel and airplane travel and all that kind of stuff and the age of globalization that we've realized, hey, wait a minute, there's a stack of religions out there and now we actually need to kind of revise the whole God set of options. But I want to say that as an ancient historian, that's just not true. It's just not true in any way, shape or form. That in the ancient world that early Christianity was birthed into, the Jesus movement from its very, very beginnings was proclaiming Jesus in the midst of a world that had a very full spiritual menu. We know of that from the ruins. We know of that from the texts. We know of it from this text because at the start of this text, it opens with the Apostle Paul saying, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. Now, I do apologize. I thought the good folks here at City Light, because they were a number of years ago, used the Christian Standard Bible Translation. And so I've given all my quotes in that. And Gab tells me now they're using the English Standard Version. And I say, I should always check these details, shouldn't I? But that's, I do apologize. I'll have it right for next week. But anyhow, you'll notice that it means the same thing, even though it might use slightly different words on occasions. But you see, it says at the start, Paul says, I see that you're extremely religious in every respect because people have been wrestling with religious choices forever. They've always been trying to choose which God is real. People in the past wanted clarity just like you want it today. But in this passage, Paul says something interesting. He goes on to say in verse 23, For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Now, I love this. This city is so religious that they have altars for every possible option that might be available, including the ones that they haven't found yet. This is effectively religious fire insurance. It's kind of sitting there and saying, I'm worshipping everyone I possibly can, and if I've missed someone, there's your spot. And these are actually legit inscriptions. We haven't found one in Athens, but we have actually found one that's very, very similar from the Palatine Hill in Rome. This notion of putting up an altar to an unknown God is something that was known because in a world filled with many gods, what are you going to do if you just haven't done enough research, put up an altar like this, and maybe you can get yourself covered? In other words, in this passage, there are people who are just as confused and unsure as you are. We're not alone. We're all seeking clarity, whether we're from the ancient world or in the modern world. 
And it's at this point I want to cycle back on that question I asked a little earlier about perhaps what we need to talk about is what's the clarity you're actually seeking? What kind of clarity are you actually seeking? What is the standard of obviousness that you are wanting from God in order to call forth your commitment? Because when it comes to the question of God, I often get the sense from the people that I'm talking to that they want God to show himself in a way that will remove all possibility of doubt. I will believe God and in him if he tears open the sky, shines a light down upon my head and a big finger starts writing on the wall or something like that and then I'll believe. I'll believe God if he puts on like a rock opera that kind of has flash pots and everything like that. Like God's got to do something in a massive way in order for me to believe in him. Indeed, some people do have those kinds of radical experiences. Maybe not the rock opera one, but you know, people do have these kinds of radical experiences where they say, I had this experience and everything changed for me. They see a miracle happen. They have a vision and you're kind of like, and their life just turns around. And to tell you the truth, I would like that to happen sometimes then I'd be certain. Except I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be certain because you can always doubt. You can always raise questions. Maybe I hallucinated. Maybe I had a bad burrito or something. You know, like, maybe there's some other explanation. Even if it's just super weird and it's beyond explanation, maybe you're going to park it and say, someday I'll get an explanation for what happened there. But it doesn't mean it's God. In other words, you can always doubt. You can always question. Such that even if you could name the experience, you could sit there and go, there's a way that you could kind of hold on to your skepticism if you truly wanted to. But you see, that's true of pretty much every belief we hold, including ones we feel pretty certain about. You can always ask questions doesn't actually mean that you shouldn't hold with confidence the beliefs that you hold. It doesn't automatically mean that you don't have something worth believing in. I actually think it's hard, maybe even impossible, for people to hold on to some belief in which it's absolutely impossible to doubt. You can always ask questions, but that doesn't mean we're awash in a sea of ambiguity and scepticism. That just means... That in every day of our life, we make thousands of good decisions, rational decisions, to believe something and to do something, even in the absence of absolute, absolute certainty. Like today, I noticed that you all walked in and you all plonked yourself down on one of these puppies, on one of these chairs. You all put down with your considerable weight on that chair and none of you, Not a single one of you performed a full and comprehensive structural test on that particular object to work out if it could take your weight. And you're like, well, why would we do that, Mark? Well, I mean, some of you don't know Gavin and Jeremy as well as I do. These guys are serial pranksters. You don't know that one of their funnest activities is to soar three-quarters of the way through the back legs of most chairs and every Sunday to just watch chaos unfold as a way of Christian ministry and saying you should trust no one, okay? (laughs) These guys are serial pests 
and you don't know that, and you just sat down, you put your faith in that chair without having absolute certainty that you could sit on it. And you know what? You were exactly right to do so. You're exactly right to do so for all sorts of reasons. One is Gavin and Jeremy aren't like that. But two, you've been in this room before maybe or you've seen chairs like this before. You've looked at them. There's no evidence to suggest that you shouldn't actually entrust your weight to these chairs. And so you sat down in the absence of absolute certainty but with full confidence that the chair could hold you. You see, that's what we're looking for with regards to our beliefs. We're not just looking for absolute certainty, because I'm not quite sure you can always find that. What we're looking for is enough evidence to be properly confident. Are we going to wait to do any decision in our life to the point where we can eliminate all possible doubt? Or are we actually going to sit there and wait to the point where we've got enough to say that I can be properly confident? I mean, if you had to be 100% certain about every decision in your life on every single day, you wouldn't get out of bed. You wouldn't get into bed, for that matter, because you may encounter that the spring is going to come through the mattress on this one evening, or you haven't performed your full and comprehensive bed bug check for that evening, and therefore you don't know if you're about to be eaten alive. But let's just say you did take the risk and actually get into the bed, then when the morning comes, well, that's when the problems truly begin. Okay, because can you actually be sure that the floor is going to hold your weight? And if you're sure that the floor is going to hold your weight, can you be sure that the toothpaste has not been poisoned? Well, you better send it off to the lab, just like you do every day. Okay, you can't actually do this. You can't eliminate all doubt from all of the decisions in your life. What you have to do is you just need enough evidence to be confident. To be confident. Let me give you another example. This is a picture of my gorgeous wife. Ah, just stop me for a moment. Anyhow, now I, I love this woman and I am supremely confident that my wife loves me and is faithful to me. Now, can I be absolutely certain of this fact? Without being mean, I can't. I mean, I track her movements on Find My iPhone and follow her expenditure on the credit card statements and stuff like that. But, you know, those things can be faked. You know, she can pay in cash. You know, I mean, there's all sorts of problems there. I actually don't know for sure where my wife is at the moment. I have a pretty strong confidence she's looking after everyone else's kids at Kellyville Anglican Church right at this very moment. But maybe she's at home uh, with the postman. We have very good-looking postman in Kellyville. Uh, how can I trust my wife if I'm not absolutely certain. Because all the evidence is enough to make me supremely confident. We might move on from said postman. <laughs> all the evidence is enough to make me supremely confident. That's all we've ever got, actually, in our relationships. We can't eliminate every possible conspiracy theory. But we can find sufficient evidence to be confident. Some relationships, I'm sure you're aware, get destroyed because one partner just can't be convinced that the other truly loves them, that nothing will ever do for them. And it's odds on that in a room like this, I'm talking to some people on the opposite end of that experience, who've experienced the problem where their confidence in a relationship was misplaced and you were hurt or you were damaged or you were broken by someone who betrayed your trust 
trust. But even in light of that, even in light of those experiences, I don't think we can ever have so much evidence to eliminate every possible questioning thought that might ever go through our brain. We just need to make sure that the evidence we have means our confidence is well-placed. And it's the same way with Jesus. What you're looking for is a reason to believe, a reason to trust, a reason to be confident. See, that's what Christians mean by the word faith. Faith is not blind. It never is blind. You always believe for a reason. And faith is not meant to be an irrational leap. Faith is a reasonable trust because God has shown you enough to be confident in Jesus. Faith is reasonable trust because God has shown you enough to believe in Jesus. You have a basis for your confidence. That's why you put your trust in Jesus. So that begs the question, why are Christians so confident about Jesus? What's so compelling about Jesus that anybody would ever think that God has spoken clearly in him and through him? Paul gives us an answer to this question in the passage that was read for us before. After seeing all their altars to God's known and unknown, Paul makes a bold claim. He says, therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made everything, the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Then a little further on in the passage. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Say it again. God isn't trying to hide from you. He wants people to seek him He wants people to discover him, but maybe we're looking for clarity and confirmation in the wrong place. Because the central way that God has revealed himself is in the person of Jesus. In verse 31, when it talks about focusing on the man God has appointed, offering proof to everyone by raising him from the dead, that's Jesus he's talking about. Now, this is important. Christianity and for everyone to consider. If you want to see God making himself clearer, what I say to you, what any Christian will say to you is if you want to see God making himself clearer, I point you to Jesus. You want to know what my God is like? Look at Jesus. You want to know what my God wants for the world? Look at Jesus. You want to know what my God thinks of you? Listen to Jesus. Don't get me wrong. I've still got questions. I've still got things that I need to sort out with God. But my clarity with regard to Jesus comes from the fact that in Jesus, what I've been given is enough. Jesus is enough. Jesus is the clearest 
and most shining lamppost to exactly who God is and exactly what we need to know about him. And therefore, if you want to evaluate Christianity, you actually don't have to search that far and wide. You just need to look at Jesus. And why am I so confident in Jesus? Me, the intellectual, why am I so confident in Jesus? Partly it's because of what God didn't do. That might sound weird. It's that God didn't actually send his supreme revelation as a spiritual vision which only one person had. He didn't send some privatized spiritual experience which I could never access. I just have to believe that that person over there had a spiritual experience. Or, or he didn't send some esoteric teaching which I have to decode. No, instead of doing that, what he did is he sent his son into the world, into the middle of history, to be seen and examined by anyone who wants to take a look. See, the central claim of Christianity is that God showed up in the person of Jesus, in public, in history, which means you can actually test the claims of Christianity. My faith is entirely based on the fact that something happened. Now, that might sound weird, but that there really was a someone who did something truly astounding. And that's rare amongst religions of the world to put your neck on the line like that and to say, this is all based on the fact that something really happened. As 1 John says, this is what we have observed. This is what we have touched with our hands. It might seem weird when you first hear it, but the the thing which makes me so confident in Jesus is because of how vulnerable my faith is to being disproven. That might sound weird, but I'll say it again. The thing which makes me so confident in Jesus is because of how vulnerable my faith is to being disproven. Because you can kill my faith. You really can. Just find the bones of Jesus, I'm out of here. You can really destroy my faith. Because the teachings of Jesus don't mean anything when at the center of his teachings is his death and resurrection. No, no, no. If you can destroy his existence or his resurrection, I'm out of here. And, and Christianity is so vulnerable. But that is what makes it so powerful. Because when something is testable... If and when it passes the test, you get this enormous boost of confidence. See, that's the thing with Christ. You can examine and test his claims. As my friend John Dixon has written, the openness of Christianity to rigorous scrutiny is, in my opinion, one of the most exciting things about it. I want a faith that can be tested. That's the confidence and joy I have in Jesus. This is something you can test. This is something you can evaluate. And once you've tested, you can rely on it with great confidence. That's why since age 16, I've tried to be a skeptic, but I keep on ending up a believer. I've tried to work out, is there a reason to not believe? But actually, all that keeps on happening for me is that my faith becomes more and more confident. The questions remain, sure. But the, the possibility of questions doesn't mean you can't have confidence to commit. The possibility of questions doesn't mean you can't have the confidence to commit. I'm as confident in Jesus' resurrection 
as I am about any other fact in my life. And I've bet my life on the resurrection of Jesus. I've bet my entire life on it. I want it to be the case that if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then my life is foolish. That's what I believe in. So where are you in all of this? And how do you connect with this passage? Perhaps the ones you connect with are the characters at the end of this passage. One of the beautiful things about the Bible is that it's always honest. Very honest. It tells it like it is and it tells it like it happens. So right at the end, Paul, having preached up a storm to the crowd, it says, verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. It happens to the best of us. You can be given the best talk you ever gave in your life and people will still be casting shade at you. But others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. See, that's what the story of Jesus does. Every time it gets proclaimed, there are people who will dismiss it. And I get that. But there are always some who will say, I want to know more. I want to believe, but I need a space where I can ask the questions and test for myself whether Jesus is enough. So I want to invite you to explore Jesus. Because Jesus is the single best reason to believe in Christianity. Jesus is the single best reason to believe in Christianity. And so the journey of faith is not about dismissing your questions. Rather, the journey of faith says, ask your questions and find your confidence. That's what introducing Jesus is about here at this church. It's what it's about when you do those kinds of courses at any church. But I want you to be invited to explore, to ask your questions so that you may find your confidence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who wants us to know you. And because you want us to know you, that means we can find you. Not because we're brilliant explorers, not because we're smarter or quicker or better or we dug in the right place, but rather you've shown yourself in Jesus. And so help us to fix our eyes on him, to see him, to understand him, to test him, and then ultimately to put our trust in him when we see that you have met all our needs to put our confidence in him. Heavenly Father, help us wherever we're at on our journey whatever questions we have, whatever certainties we have, help us to continue to look to Jesus as the one on whom we know and rely. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.